Welcome to Jim Babka's Post-Status Review. I'm Howard, your co-host, and with me is Jim. Say hello, Jim. Hello, Jim. <laughs> so a little bit about uh, who we are and what we're trying to do, and uh, I want to start with Jim's background. Jim wants to help libertarians bring about a peaceful and prosperous society by locating and activating 13 million libertarians. With Perry Willis, he operates Downsize DC, home of the One Subject at a Time Act and the Read the Bills Act. The Downsize DC system recruits an army of people to work alongside you. Together, you can compel your so-called government representatives to pay attention to you. Jim and Perry also co-created the Zero Aggression Project, designed to help you share the most complete moral case for a voluntarist approach called post-statism. And I don't, I don't want to give away post-statism just yet, because we're actually going to discuss that here in a few minutes. Now, a little bit about my background. I've got 15 years in information technology, and I produce and engineer four separate podcasts. And of course, no good suggestion goes unpunished. Right, Jim? No, no. You volunteer here. You get stuck doing work. So when I came to Jim and said, Jim, you need to be doing a podcast, he said, great. When are you going to set that up for me? And here we are. Exactly. And I appreciate the opportunity. So the show is called a post-status review, but it seems kind of appropriate that we begin with what an explanation of that term is. Your Zero Aggression Project website has a tool called Mental Levers, and you define post-statism this way. Post-statists advocate a forward-looking approach where history has discarded the state in favor of consumer-controlled governance. There are some unique terms in there for sure. Can you break that down for our audience, Jim? Sure, I would be glad to. So uh, forward-looking is an, is an appropriate uh, thing to say because you know that we live in an era right now where virtually every nation on the planet, uh, there might be one possible exception out there, is currently run by a state. That means there is an institution that believes it has the power and the right to initiate violence against people to get what it wants. We call often call these laws or regulations, but what they boil down to essentially is that a group of people can vote to tell, tell their neighbors to do virtually anything they want to tell them to do, and the neighbors have to comply under threat of law. A gun could be pointed at them. They could be arrested. They could even be shot if they resist following the rules that are set by their by majority vote of their neighbors, and that is called the state. And, and as I said, virtually every nation on the planet has a governance system that works this way. We prefer something that would come after the state. I, I advocate something called, as a post-state, it's called consumer-controlled government. And what that means is that you would get to pick who provides you security. You would get to pick who provides you regulation services. Maybe you would do this in conjunction with a handful of your neighbors. Maybe you would choose services all on your own. You would choose a variety of different governance type of systems. And in choosing those systems, you would be a consumer. You would be somebody who could complain to the management and because you are paying for the service, you've signed up for the service, and because you could leave and go to another competing service, they have to pay much more attention to you than any voting system does. In a voting system, your power is diluted. The more po people who are voting in it, 
the less relative power you have. So, for example, it's very hard to change a law, but you can you can get really upset at a hamburger stand. You can rail and go nuts. They'll give you the hamburger. They'll give you your money back. And you could still choose not to go back to the hamburger stand. You have nowhere near as much power as a voter as you do a consumer. So our forward looking vision of the post status is where you get to choose your forms of governance, your regulators, your security services, as opposed to your neighbors doing that for you. Okay, so that that makes good sense um, in, in transitioning, you know, more responsibility. In fact, it, from what I understand, um, I, I call myself a a young libertarian, not in age, but in understanding of what the libertarian movement looks like and what it what the libertarian party stands for. And to me, that makes sense from a libertarian point of view that uh, that the state takes less role in what the and what the individual does or has access to uh indeed but you know you have services already that you are choosing to help you with security with regulation there are voluntary private services that provide some of these things already and what we're basically arguing is that they're probably in fact i would be hard pressed to think of any and i've given this an awful lot of thought any service that the state provides that couldn't be provided on a voluntary basis, that couldn't uh, be provided by people choosing to uh, seek out that service and how those services would be paid for and how they would be made available to people, even the, 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 that can uh, vary significantly. Um, creativity abounds in the marketplace. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, there could be many approaches. Some people may feel that they don't need certain types of services, where other people feel they need much more service than they're presently getting. And all of those options would still be available to them. So is this a libertarian point of view? Indeed, it is, Howard. We want people to think this way uh, more and more and more. And that's how I would kind of define libertarianism. The more that you're taking the state out of the equation, that ability to point guns at people, and the more you're giving them choice as to how they will get these services for themselves, uh, the more libertarian you're, you're moving. If you move all the way in this direction, this post-status direction, then you're a voluntarist. You believe that all these services should and must be on a moral and pragmatic basis should be voluntary. They should be chosen by the people who want them rather than imposed by your neighbors. That makes perfect sense. And thanks for fleshing that out. Now, if our audience wanted to learn more about post-statism, we can send them to a resource, right? Yes. Yeah, so the Zero Aggression Project has a tool called Mental Levers, as you mentioned, and uh, one of them is the post-statism mental lever. We define this a little, a little more detail there in a way that you can share with friends, and we define a lot of our other terms and uh, ways of looking at the world. We answer objections there as well that tend to be raised to the voluntarist or libertarian point of view. So if they go to zeroaggressionproject.org slash mental lever, they will find the post-statism lever and many other tools, thinking tools. If you're a voluntarist libertarian and you're hearing this podcast, you definitely want to check these out because I've found them. Perry Willis has found them. I'm sure even in some cases you, Howard, have found them valuable for sharing in social media settings when you're trying to find just the right words to explain a certain point or, or perspective that you have. Definitely. And we'll list a link to that uh, where we found that definition on the zero aggression project in our show notes. So w- if you're listening to the show now, just scroll down the page a little bit. You can find the link right there. But your take on post-statism and the reason for post-statism actually you know, causes me to think about some of these areas where the state currently is doing maybe a little less than stellar job. So 
there was a uh, quote from uh, President Obama, actually, during his administration. And the quote was, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. I believe we have an audio clip. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor under the reform proposals that we put forward. If you like your private health insurance plan, you can keep it. If you like the plan you have, you can keep it. If you like the doctor you have, you can keep your doctor too. We will keep this promise to the American people. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you will be able to keep your health care plan, period. If you like your doctor, you'll be able to keep your doctor. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. If you've got health insurance, you like your doctor, you like your plan, you can keep your doctor, you can keep your plan. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. So according to President Obama's own statement was if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Now, I know you have some personal experience here. Did you (laughs) get to keep your doctor, Jim? Well, first of all, we're going to get to my current story. You probably have noticed I'm coughing a bit. I will, you know, have to keep kind of like hitting the pause button during the course of this broadcast. I've got uh, a deep, uh, real bad cough. One person said it might even be whooping cough. I don't know how long the vaccine or whatever lasts from my childhood. Uh, But at any rate, it started off as sinusitis. So I'm going to get to that story. But I want to tell, first of all, this promise was made during the Obamacare health care debate. It was made repeatedly, it, it, uh, several times, and along with being able to keep your health insurance. And many Americans have found that they haven't been able to do that, Howard. So my story starts in 2014. We were in the process. It was uh, We had a cold winter. We were in the process of moving into a new house. And my wife uh, developed a severe uh, bronchitis and uh, she was in the process of moving stuff to the house every day. Uh, she would go from one house to the other, load up our Jeep and drive stuff over here two, three times a day to get stuff ready uh, uh, for us to move into our new house later in January. And, and uh, it was during that time she got so, so sick that she basically like lost her ability to think. If you've ever been through this where your breathing is so weak and your cough is so bad that she was not thinking clearly. Uh, she pulled into the wrong driveway, for example, one day that she was sitting here and she kept hitting the button to open the garage door and it wouldn't open. And so, you know, my son finally said, mom, you're in the wrong driveway because he was with her on that load. So fast forward, we, you know, I realized my wife's in pretty bad shape and I want to get her in to see the doctor. Well, immediately after the passage of Obamacare, my doctor chose to retire and he was in a private practice at the time. And this private practice thing is going to prove real important to the story I'm going to tell you. Um, At any rate, he retired and he sold all of his stuff to a conglomerate that's in the area, one of the three major ones that provides health care. He sold my records and my family's records to this conglomerate. And then uh, uh, the rest of the office that he co-owned went to uh, joined another competing one of the other three conglomerates uh, in the area. And uh, in fact, that one happens to be the largest employer in the county in which I reside. So my office doesn't exist anymore. It's been sold off to one uh, large chain. My records have been sold off to another and my doctor is completely gone. So we hadn't visited the doctor for a few months, had no reason to. And so we called to try to get in. And when we try, my wife, keep in mind, has severe bronchitis and mm-hmm. we call up and they say to us, well, we don't have you established as a patient. 
Well, I ask what that means. And they say to me, you have to come in and have a physical before we can do anything else, a new patient physical. I said, but you have our records. Okay, fine. Let's schedule a new patient physical. It's January. They can't see her until April. So long story short, we were able, because I basically got loud and threatening, uh, to get a prescription over the phone. And, and uh, we ended up finding another doctor, thanks to a friend. We went to another private practice uh, and found that doctor. But here we are in 2014, you know, just a few years after the passage of Obamacare, and it's really starting to take effect. And we lost our doctor almost right away. Yeah. Uh, you know, my perspective on this is, is a little bit different, but what I came through, um, I'm, I actually receive healthcare through the VA, which mm-hmm. is when the Affordable Health Care Act actually passed, my first comment was, everyone's going to see exactly what it's like to be in a government-run healthcare system, much like what I experienced through the VA. Boy, you ain't kidding. It's, it is. It's exactly what you described. When I need an appointment with my primary care physician, I make a call to a national telephone line. They mm-hmm. say, no problem. It's February. We can get you in around June. How's that? And then if I say, well, I have an immediate problem, they say, is it life-threatening? And I say, no. And they say, yeah, we'll get you in in June. Yeah. So there you go. That's how free healthcare works, right? Because that's ostensibly what they're providing. It's government provided so-called free healthcare. It's healthcare for all. It seems to it that no one falls through the cracks. Everyone has healthcare available to them. But what happens is that a lot of people who have healthcare, who are willing to pay for it, cannot get it anymore. So are we really that far ahead? Do, are we better off, at, ov- even overall as a society, with a system that works that way? So fast forward to just a f- couple of weeks ago, uh, that's exactly what happened to me. My practice has since been sold to, to yet a third conglomerate that's in the area. People know the name. It's a national, it has a national reputation. It's the Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic is now in the business of setting up private practices all over the country. Mm-hmm. And when I got sick a couple of weeks ago, they told me that they would give me an appointment on Wednesday the 21st. This was near the beginning of the month. It was more than two weeks later before I would be allowed to see my existing doctor, my current doctor. And, and we had to schedule it over for the very first time over one of these phone systems where the person wasn't actually in the office. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I ended up going to the back, a clinic in the back of a drugstore where they cannot give you uh, a powerful cough medicine because they're not allowed to give out any narcotics from there. You're only seeing a nurse practitioner um, paid nearly as much as I would. In fact, more than I used to, to my old doctor, when I had my private care doctor, almost double what I had to pay to see him, uh, to go into this, this urgent care place and get less care than I used to get. So I'm paying twice the price for less care. And that was the trade-off I got for trying to get some medicine to begin dealing with this problem that I'm still carrying, by the way, a couple of weeks later. So, you know, the question then is, um, why is this happening? And I I mentioned, and not by accident, the fact that there are three major conglomerates competing in this area that have basically gobbled up all of the practices. There is a conglomeration system. So, Howard, we have been under a regime for a very, very long time in this country where people do not pay for their own health care. An insurance company pays for their health care. And the insurance company, people do not pay for their insurance either. Their employer pays for their health insurance. So they are a full two steps removed from their doctor. And because the doctor now has to manage his relationship with these health insurance companies, he has a he, he has staff both answering the phone and handling your records that are between uh, he and you. 
So now you have three levels of bureaucracy that have replaced the direct relationship that you have with your doctor. That's what third-party systems do. Um, and, and, and so what's happened is that in order for these offices now to deal with the fact that they've got to have all this staff, uh, and it's expensive, they try to begin consolidating and joining groups that will provide specialization, will provide help with the billing records that they have to deal with. And more importantly, they will provide negotiating power. So when your doctor, you know, used to make house calls, uh, um, and that's before a lot of people's time who's, who are listening, but it, it, it's not that long ago, 50, 70 years ago, doctors were still making house calls. Um, what, that doctor can't do that anymore. He needs to see as many people as he possibly can to support this whole billing apparatus. And most important of all, these doctors can no longer negotiate from a position of strength because they're just one little tiny practice. So they join a conglomerate like the Cleveland Clinic so that they can negotiate at a much larger basis with these insurance companies on how on, on, on price. So these conglomerates are able to get a lot more money or extract a lot more money because they have a much larger client base from the insurance companies. And so you are seeing the, the, uh, a vanishing, a disappearing act for you know, the private practice that you could go to where you called, you spoke to, to uh, a nurse that worked in that practice, you scheduled an appointment, you got in to see the same day, um, you dealt directly with your doctor. That is all vanishing and it has only gotten worse since the passage of Obamacare. I do find it interesting that a lot of the people that are waving the anti-corporate flag for the reason of putting out a business, these mom and pop type shops, these companies, small companies, uh, to the point that the government said, okay, well, we're going to actually set aside a bunch of money to help small business so that we don't get this bad rep for putting businesses out of business. Those same people that are waving that flag are the ones saying this is something good for our country, but we're seeing the same thing happen with our with our small practice doctors. The, the house call is gone. I don't know when the last time somebody made a house call was. It doesn't really exist much anymore unless you're homebound. The, the personal touch that comes with a, a private practice just doesn't seem to exist anymore. No, it doesn't. And there's a whole litany of reasons why uh, that general practitioner is starting to fade. I, we only have time today to focus on a couple of them. And one of them is this consolidation where they're being gobbled up so that they can negotiate their practices, can negotiate from a position of strength with the insurance companies. And, and this means, by the way, that you're paying more you're, you're, uh, for, for insurance, your co-pays, your deductibles, and so forth keep going up and up. Uh, Obamacare has done nothing to solve those problems. It's worsened those all across the board. You haven't been able to keep your doctor in many cases, and you definitely haven't, in most cases, been able to keep your insurance provider. Uh, it didn't matter whether you liked them or not. It didn't matter if you were satisfied. You've lost those things. But this, this, this doctor, you know, the general practitioner was a unique doctor in the field. If you wanted to, uh, for example, have a, uh, 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 if you were a doctor, someone coming into the medical profession who really wanted to make a lot of money, you might choose a, uh, a being a surgeon or some kind of specialist because you would make more money, you would have more control over your hours, and, and, and indeed, many people coming out of medical school are making that decision. But the general practitioner was kind of unique to the breed. He was the guy that would hang out his own shingle. He was frequently very much a member, a respected member of the community. He wasn't as money motivated necessarily 
and there's nothing wrong with being money motivated as people who went into some kind of specialization. It was more of a relationship type of thing. You knew your doctor by name and he knew you. And that has changed. That that dynamic has gone away. And so now even when I go to this practice, I don't necessarily see the same doctor anymore. Uh, I see one of the doctors that's in the practice, the first one that's available at the moment. And so uh, we're losing that personalization. And it's an important question to ask because so much of what Obamacare tried to do, and in fact, it did something very specifically, which was try to standardize medical procedures and medical billing and codes, trying to make all that stuff consistent and test to make sure that the doctor wasn't doing anything that was unduly too expensive. The idea that we can make medicine cookie cutter, that Howard Salter and Jim Babka and the listeners out there are all the very same people, uh, I think is, is the wrong way to go. I would prefer to have an option where you know I have that personal touch. The doctor does know me by name, and he is kind of a, an upstanding member of the community who, who knows me and who pays special attention to me and will take whatever time is necessary uh, to provide the service that I need. So... I, you know, we've got to do something, I think, to, to address the supply and demand of, of general practitioners. We have to do, do stuff to reduce the government's role in billing code complexity. I, I think, but even, even more so, we've got to try to end this division between you and your doctor. You, Howard, you should be able to negotiate with your doctor. You should know your doctor. Your doctor should be able to set up competitively in private practice, just like he did before. And the only way that we can do that is to reduce the role of third-party payments in the system. More than half of those payments now, well over half, are coming from the government directly, and, some, and the rest are coming from insurance companies. And we need to reduce uh, private insurance companies. We need to reduce the role of that so that more of the routine stuff that you may see a doctor for, my wife's bronchitis, my uh, sinusitis, those things are actually able to be addressed on a one-to-one basis uh, where a doctor's meeting with a patient and, and providing more custom care. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but doesn't Downsize DC have some uh, some proposed bills coming up that relate just to what we're talking about now. Yeah, so we are we have a series of proposals that we presented at the outset of Donald Trump's presidency after his inauguration. We put twenty down on on paper, and we're going to be introducing even more. And some of those are actionable at Downsize DC. As you know, Howard, one of the great things about coming to Downsize DC is that you can send a personalized message to your representative and two senators in such a way that they know that they're hearing from a constituent. And uh, uh, we provide this service for free, so I would encourage people to come and check it out. And we're launching two new campaigns uh, just just in time for this broadcast, actually, uh, to try to begin to address this third-party payment issue and try to begin to turn things back towards a market-oriented approach where you had a direct relationship with your doctor. And we think there's two places that we have to, to attack. So I'd like to take each in order, if you don't mind. I'd like to talk about, first of all, the government's role. The government has a huge role in healthcare, and we need to do what we can to reconnect patients and doctors there. Uh, So to do that, we have a proposal that we're releasing that would incentivize the frugal use of medical service by creating uh, HSAs for Medicaid and Medicare. In other words, instead of having the dollars be totally handled through third-party systems, we would want to put those dollars in, in, in the hands directly of the people who need these services. If you're on Medicare, you're on Medicaid, you would be able to determine how much of that money needs to be spent, and you would be able to keep what you didn't spend. You would be able to start managing the frugal use of those resources. Now, frugality comes by by having some reward 
right? It comes from ownership of something. So if I have the, if the fund belongs to me, I get to choose how much it is that I want to spend. And if I don't want to spend all of it, I want to keep some of that money. I can do that as well. So people can begin making choices for themselves and they are going to begin to pay attention to prices. If you think about it this way, this may be the absolute biggest problem with our healthcare today. There is nothing that you buy, nothing that you own right now, no service that you use where you don't know what the cost of it is. You buy a home, you buy a car, you buy an insurance policy, you buy a loaf of bread. You ask what it costs. But when you go to see the doctor, you A, don't ask what it costs, and B, the doctor can't tell you because that's a negotiation between your insurance company and has to do with the complexity of your appointment. There are so many factors that go into it. They literally cannot tell you what it costs, for example, to do something that they do routine, that they maybe even the stuff that they do with every single patient that comes in the door, like check your heartbeat. They can't tell you what that costs you as a consumer. We want to change that. We want to see people have, have health savings accounts where they're asking these questions in advance and doctors are feeling like they need to begin to respond and economization is going on. That's what we want to do on the government spending side. So really what we're talking about is moving uh, the power of purchase back to the purchaser rather than putting the power of purchase in the hands of the medical community and a status government that really doesn't have your best interest in mind. It's got the interest of every one of its constituents in mind. That is Exactly. And each individual would be making that choice. You know how we talked about this consumer control. You would have consumer control. And I, I suspect that in this is true in every other arena. And in fact, it's even true in the healthcare arena where such as plastic surgery, LASIK surgery, uh, some dental work, all this stuff. They know how to give you a price on something because it's not all insurance driven. And so we want to try to move away from that model with more consumer control. But we need to do it first in Medicare and Medicaid because more than half of the healthcare dollars in this country are being spent through those two systems, those two programs. Yes. And I, I agree that uh, the medical sector itself needs to orient itself back to the consumer versus. There was a, a long period there where insurance companies, even though they're private entities, were definitely for-profit entities, but the 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 medical um, institutions were actually, it seemed like they're getting caught up in that, in the way the insurance companies operate, rather than looking to the consumer, which is really what we're trying to drive here, is looking back to the consumer, as we've already stated several times. Yep. My my question is, though, how can, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're going, yes, this is this is what needs to happen. Tell us again how they can get involved specifically with these bills that are, are launching as this podcast is launching. So we will also have, uh, you know, with the show, with show notes, we'll include links to the two proposals I'm going to, I'm covering here. The first one that we've just described of, uh, involving Medicare and Medicaid, uh, HSAs, home health savings accounts. And, and, but if people also, I can describe that if they go to downsidesdc.org and they look at the menu and they pick our proposals, you'll, they'll find a healthcare section there and they will find these, uh, letter writing campaigns available to them. They can be, they can advocate for their views 
at downsizedc.org using our simple free system uh, where the system identifies for them who their representative and two senators are and delivers each of those messages simultaneously to each of those respective offices in, in such a way that the offices know that they're hearing from a constituent. So you can advocate for this proposal for a Medicare or Medicaid HSA on the Our Proposals page at downsizedc.org or by following the links with the show notes. And, and how about uh, social media? Is there a way for them to interact with, uh, with you and with the Downside DC organization, the Army, as it's being created on social media? Can you real quick give yeah, us- Yeah, we are uh, quite active on Facebook. And uh, so if they want to reach us, we are Downsize DC on Facebook. If they go to at Downsize DC, they'll find us. And so I would encourage them to check us out at Downsize DC as well on Facebook. Awesome. So in, in discussing this... Uh, this problem with the healthcare industry where government has kind of shoved its nose in where it doesn't belong. It, it actually leads to a bigger discussion on other areas that we feel like this has taken place as well. And, and I cannot, there's not a person that I know that, that I've talked to who doesn't agree that the government has, um, how does, how does Beverly Goldberg say it? She says, a mixed in. The government has mixed in where they don't belong. Uh, another one of those areas um, that, w- that I'd like to talk about today is how we manage uh, the social programs like welfare. It, does the government do a better job than that, uh, than voluntary charities? Or, or can we be more effective as, as charities then the government can be with all of its restrictions and massive machinery that needs to move. You know, I think for most people listening, they're going to think that the answer is self-evident that the charities have to be more efficient um, because they have to compete for your attention. They have to get people to, to donate money uh, in order to get their cause to work. So they've got to try to do the best that they can at managing the limited resources they have. It's actually a value. And this is hard for people to get their heads around that the resources of charities are limited that they're not unlimited like the government spending might potentially be because that means that waste has to be cut out and the people that need the help the most are the ones that are going to get it. People who want to take advantage of a system have a harder time taking advantage, for example, of a voluntary charity than they do of, of a government uh, institution because there is the, the money is limited and they have to be very, very efficient with those dollars. So there's a value to that limit. There's a value to being small and nimble almost. And, that, and I, I mean that small and nimble even from some of the biggest charities in the country because uh, they're still not as big off usually as the bureaucracies that are funded uh, by the federal and state governments, which we do know have waste and abuse inside them. We do know that they are even defrauded in significant cases. And so what we're, we're proposing here is to try to do something about that. How is there, is there a method whereby we could empower uh, voluntary local charities, a charity that you value, you know, your favorite charity, over, and, and, and to do more, to be more effective, to have more reach and power in its local community? Is there a way that we can make these more efficient social welfare engines more expand their reach and make them even more effective. You, you were talking about um, waste and abuse, and it occurs to me that that problem is so prevalent in the government. They have an entire sector of government employees dedicated to finding waste and abuse. 
groups. It's it's and it's not one guy sitting in an office somewhere looking at reports. It's a whole sector. You could actually have a career in discovering waste, abuse, and fraud in government operations. Uh, I, I did spend some time in the military, and we actually got training on how to recognize when someone was uh, defrauding the government by taking supplies or not uh, not giving the the proper amount of time as you're supposed to with your job, um, and all these different things. And you're, they want you to, um, for lack of a better term, spy on your coworkers to make sure they're not, they're not doing, uh, to make sure they're not, they're not wasting resources or trying to defraud the government. And this in and of itself is a waste of resources because you've got a whole department dedicated to searching out these wastes and these frauds. But now we're going to say, it's okay, we're going to leave it down to the individual employee to do this. There's no wonder why they can't handle charitable uh, donations with effectiveness. It's because they're too busy with the red tape and making sure the machine is oiled. I, I completely agree that this, you know, private voluntary charities has to be the way to go. I mean, I mean, why can't I donate to my favorite charity instead of being forced to send that same money to Washington, D.C.? Well, I, and I think that's that brings up, that's a perfect question to ask. And you are not alone in thinking this. So there are people uh, um, in our culture who believe that we need that compassion is defined by how much money the government spends on a social welfare problem. We typically refer to these people as either liberals or maybe even progressives or socialists, right? They, they say we need to have more social welfare, a bigger, thicker safety net. But interestingly enough, the people who hold that view uh, ideologically, as it were, who are in the nonprofit sector, if you go to many of them and you say, does your charity do a better job of serving your constituency than the bureaucracies in your, in your uh, local, state, and federal level? And they almost unanimously say, well, of course, my charity does a better job. So we're making a direct appeal that I think goes across all lines with a proposal called the Universal Charitable Credit Act. And it, this is a this is a, a tax law that is already in effect in Arizona. It's just recently taken effect there, and we are looking to take it national and maybe to every other state in the union as well. But for now, we're starting off national, and we're working in conjunction with an organization called We Do Better. You can find them on the web. We Do Better, and WeDoBetter.org is helping us. In fact, they brought to us this universal charitable credit act. And I'd like to take a moment, Howard, to describe to you how this works. Okay. So the, the Universal Charitable Credit Act provides you a tax credit. This is not a deduction. A tax credit, the way it works is you get a dollar for dollar reduction in the amount of tax that you end up owing uh, at the end of the year. So if you end up owing, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a certain amount of tax, then you would pay that much less uh, if, if, if the tax credit were in effect. The tax credit that they're providing is $500 per person. $1,000 for uh, married filing jointly. So it's $500 per partner in a marriage. So you could take up to $1,000, Howard, because you're married on your tax return by choosing your own local charity. You keep the receipt for it. You say, I give $1,000 to my charity instead of sending it off to Washington, D.C. And we empower these charities that believe, every one of them, that they're going to do a better job with those dollars instead of sending it off to Washington, D.C., 
Now, it's a modest first step towards trying to create and make a more vibrant uh, safety net that's made up of voluntary compassion, of local organizing, of personal one-on-one persuasion. We're trying to do something that doesn't require the state to point guns at people and compel them to, quote unquote, be compassionate. All right. Being compassionate or else we're going to shoot you instead of sending that money off to Washington and then having it used uh, inefficiently. We want to get more of those dollars. We want better work. We want um, a more robust effort within our communities that's voluntary and truly compassionate in nature and clearly more efficient by trying to empower them with this tax credit, by giving you the ability to redirect some of the money that you're going to send off to Washington. Don't send it to Washington. Make it available to your local charities and help make them stronger. This proposal is called the Universal Charitable Credit Act, UCCA for short, and people can get involved and send a letter to their representative and two senators asking them to introduce this bill uh, at downsizedc.org. This is one of our agenda bills. We consider this one of the most important things we're doing. So if they go to the Our Proposals page at downsizedc.org or they look at the show notes where we're going to provide a link, they will see this Universal Charitable Credit Act and they can send a message asking their Congress people to please sponsor this bill and let's get started on making it available for everyone in the country to redirect dollars away from Washington, D.C. and back into our communities. I think I think the argument for for the government being able to take this on is that the government has vast resources. The problem is the government is a machine that uses resources in the most inefficient manner possible. So it's not that it's not that we don't want to use the resources of the government, it's that the government has proven time and again that they cannot be trusted with resources to create to use them in an efficient manner. That's why small businesses, small private charities in this case, are so much more efficient. They're on the ground with the people they're helping. They have the opportunity to talk face to face. They know the stories. They know the lives. They know exactly what each situation is. And those are the kind of people, if you ask me, those are the kind of people that I want to give my money to so that I can be ensured that the people that I'm helping are getting the right kind of help. Exactly. You know, it's, it's interesting about a little more than a decade ago, I was at a retreat where I met a gentleman by the name of Jeff. Jeff was a former County commissioner. Uh, he was a progressive uh, Democrat and uh, he believed in the, in, in a vibrant safety net. And in his role as County commissioner, he had a conference to attend in Washington, DC. And like many people do when they're in Washington, DC, he decided to do some sightseeing. And while he was doing uh, his sightseeing, he started walking around and looking at some of the big government buildings in downtown D.C. And he walked around a very large building where the Department of Agriculture is housed. And as he walked around this building, he just started walking completely around it just to kind of get a sense of how immense this building was because it's very big. And then he asked himself, how much corn is being grown in there? How much wheat? How much Mm -hmm. barley? How How much of anything, any agricultural product is coming out of that building? And then he realized something very important. And in fact, he experienced this the hard way in his role as county commissioner. The government would, with great fanfare, a politician would show up and they would give a grant and they would say, we want you, local government, to go into a partnership with us and we're going to help you set up this program. And they would send money and the program would get started. But inevitably, they would start to trim the money from that program and they would show up to create another new program. And the county was always left holding the bag. As years went by, they had to, in order to keep this program that people had gotten used to and was part of their system, they had to keep coming up with more and more money. 
And Jeff said he kept going back to his, to his experience walking around the Department of Agriculture. And he realized something really important about that building. All that money that was being used to fund it was coming from people like him back in Oregon. Right. And he said, why are we sending it all the way to Washington, D.C., dispersing it inside that building and then having it piecemeal back to us in the States and f- for good behavior or for temporary use? Why are we doing that? Why don't we keep the money inside our own state? Here's a proposal that says we want to do exactly that. Instead of compassion being the job of a distant bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., trying to figure out what people in Oregon or Florida or Ohio need, what if instead Oregonians, Floridians, and Ohioans kept their money at home and they shared it within their community, with their neighbors and friends, with charities that they can touch, that they can walk in and check out themselves. And they will check those charities out if it's their money going to that charity. But I think and I believe that if a tax credit was available, if some less portion of money was going off to that far distant bureaucracy, people would open their hearts up just a little bit more. Because really, the problem is they can't afford to open their wallet much more. So much is going off to Washington, D.C. But Mm -hmm. now you can keep some of that and instead redirect it to your local community. It's not the ideal plan for me as a voluntarist, as we discussed, as a post-statist. But it is a step in the right direction. It does move things in what I would call a libertarian direction. So once again, I would invite people to come to DownsizeDC.org. Send a, a letter to your representative and two senators for the Universal Church. Credit Act. You can find it on the Our Proposals page or on the liner notes for this podcast. Send a note and say, I want you to sponsor this bill. DownsizeDC.org. Yes. And that's, that's a great point. It's a good way to wrap up our first show is that, uh, you, if this is, this conversation has driven you and, and, and driven you to take an action, this page that you're listening to our podcast on, I would like for you to look to the top. There should be an, our proposals link, go ahead and click on that. And, uh, and follow for many different uh, proposals that are the Downsize DC is sponsoring in Washington. Also, scroll down the page to the show notes. Find the area where your your particular topic is discussed. There will be links to all of the websites that we mentioned in the show today. And thank you again for listening to the post status review with Jim Babka and for Jim and myself, we would just like to say, have a great rest of your day.